take a network break, help yourself to a virtual donut or two and run alongside as we sprint or at least power walk through this week's tech news. We've got stories on Intel, Cloudflare, Fortinet, Slack, and more. We're sponsored today by Path Solutions. Ever have a user complain about a problem, yet your network monitoring system says everything's fine? That means your monitoring system doesn't look deeply or broad enough to know what's really going on. Want to know what's missing? We'll tell you more at the break. And after the news, we have a sponsored Tech Bytes conversation with Palo Alto Networks on the newest capabilities of Prisma Access 2.0 for cloud-delivered security, zero-trust access, and more. Last but not least, join us on April 22nd. It's our first ever live stream event with sponsor Alkira, Alkira Network Cloud. You can deploy and manage single and multi-cloud networks. They've got built-in visibility, security, and governance delivered as a service. In this online event, we're going to do technical deep dives, have roundtable discussions hosted by the Packet Pushers, and talk about use cases, deployment scenarios, and architectures. You can register for it at Packet pushers.net slash live stream. Yeah, this is our first one. What we were trying to do is to try and take a live podcast recording, Mm -hmm. if you like, and sort of mash it up with a webinar and sort of mash it up as a YouTube video. Does that make sense? That sounds kind of weird, doesn't it? The goal is to take a webinar and make it not boring. Yeah. So instead of it being 60 minutes of uh, people congratulating themselves how clever they are for being in a webinar... What we're trying to do is is chunk it up into small yeah. little sprints, so six, yeah. ten-minute sprints through. And the idea is to change and change and change. So have one topic, ten minutes, one topic, ten minutes, so that um, that it's m- more – we're going to pick six things that we're going to talk about and then talk about right. ten minutes each. And that should be less boring than people dialoguing at you than normal. So do come along. Uh, and then if you uh, go to packetpushes.net slash livestream – uh, because we are going to be streaming it live, and you'll also be able to watch it afterwards, of course. Uh, but do go out there and you know register and join us, and it'll be your support would be appreciated for the event generally. But also, if you've got any feedback from the event itself, wouldn't mind hearing it. This is our first one. We're hoping to do some more with some more clients who are sponsoring these. And, uh, let us know what you think. Your feedback is always valuable. Yeah. Speaking of which, we've got some fu or follow up from some previous shows. Uh, first, Greg, you got some kudos talking about pets versus cattle, in particular with public cloud providers. You said not only do they treat their servers like cattle, but their customers. But this is Brian Gems writing in to say that his experience with AWS, Azure, and Oracle Cloud has been different. Yeah, he was saying that his role, he's got a medium-sized enterprise, higher ed enterprise. Brian's been on the show a couple of times as a guest talking about his experiences and so forth. And uh, he says that he's been assigned an account manager and a strong technical support team. Uh, I would probably say... Sure. And anybody who's been a Cisco customer or a HPE or a Dell customer knows that some customers have a great experience and some customers not so great. Mm-hmm. Comes down to the people involved and the location and a bunch of issues. So the general thing that I found is that most customers don't get access to the expertise or get the support that they need. They sort of you know, just one just one of a herd of customers that AWS has nothing for you. The fact that it's working for you is great and shows that it can be done, but I don't think it's AWS's business model going forward. I think this is temporary. They're trying to say they have they need the revenue, they want the revenue, and they're putting these teams in place so the customers feel like they're getting an enterprise sales experiences, and it's only temporary before they go like, ah, it's too hard. We're done with that. Move on. <laughs> Uh, Brian says, I find the enterprise account management and technical support of public cloud providers to be comparable to the support we get with our key network vendors and providers, which on one hand sounds good, but then think about your own support you've experienced you've had, as you know, Greg, could be good, could be bad. So, but thanks, Brian, for writing in. Not something I've heard from too many people. So, you know, as a counter opinion, 
valuable information that it's not all bad. Uh, in the last episode, we got another follow-up. Uh, we talked about Cisco pulling out of its live appearances at the Mobile World Congress in Barcelona this spring. A listener followed up to say that his wife was involved in conferences, and one event tried to charge money to vendors even though the event was canceled, basically saying, you paid your money, it's in the contract, we already spent it. He said the community got upset, and probably the vendors did, and the conference actually reversed that decision. That would be very difficult for everybody involved. You know, They would be right to say in the contract, you know, you've made it, you've paid a deposit, the deposit's not refundable. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we've paid, you know, the venue's still asking us to pay. So the conference organizer has to take responsibility here. So I'm sure that, you know, they took this view. Um, and then, of course, when the customers pushed back, they changed their mind. And that's what happened with MWC last year. Uh-huh. They said, no, no, we're going ahead. We're definitely going ahead. Do you remember this? Well, they have it twice a year, don't they? I think so, yeah. And so the one late last year, sort of October time, they said, no, 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 we're definitely going ahead. And then within about three weeks, they went, no, we're not. <laughs> Turns out no one's coming, so uh, never mind. Yeah. So it sort of feels like, ah, you know, we'll try it on, see if we can find any suckers and see if we can screw them out of their cash. That's sort of what it felt like. Yeah. Um, and I think that's what I was trying to say. But he's, you know, entirely correct. If you're a show, you need to have the loyalty of your sponsors, you know, of right. your, um, you know, the vendors who are going to pay for the booths and to get access to the audience. And uh, yeah, there you go. Yeah, I will say someone who worked, I, I did work in the conference space before I came to Pack of Bushers, and we had to spend a lot of money up front on venues and catering and food and all those people expected to be paid. And so if the conference gets canceled and you've got a lot of bills piling up, it's a difficult decision and different conferences are handling it different ways. Yeah, and it's going to depend on how much money the conference has and whether they expect to come out of this, you know, with a functioning business. Right. And uh, I just feel that MWC realized that the game's up. <laughs> and they might, if they burn a few customer relationships, so be it. I guess so. Mm. All right, another follow-up. Uh, this FU is on our discussion regarding Cisco's latest additions to the Silicone One family of homegrown ASICs. Uh, yeah, so what uh, the person's highlighting, this person wasn't writing anonymously, which I, is fine. Uh, they raised a good uh, a good point that what they're highlighting is that a lot of the silicon is the same across the line. And one way to differentiate it for different use cases is to use high bandwidth memory. That's where the chip actually comes. Certain versions of the chip come with a interface that externalizes to external high bandwidth memory for increased lookup capacity, or if you want to increase various pieces of the TCAM or things like that, and there's things that you can do. That's common practice in the industry. And so it allows Cisco to sort of keep reusing the same silicon for top of rack as they do for core service provider. But if you like bolt a turbocharger on the side for certain features and go, but mm. bigger and better. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so I, I'm not entirely sure that that's true. It's the briefing information that I've gotten from Cisco is pretty light on technical details. It's mostly like typical for Cisco in that they do a lot of branding and a lot of focus on the, uh, like the, the Silicon one doesn't, the, the briefing information that I got doesn't really talk about the technical feature set of the silicon, which makes me think that Silicon One isn't as advanced as its competitors. But I can't elucidate on why because its competitors won't tell me where their advantages are because they're notoriously closed. They don't talk about it. Mm-hmm. And if Cisco had an advantage other than power consumption, they would be talking about it, right. if that makes sense. Yes. So I kind of feel, yes, this is something that all the ASICs now do. They use 
technology tricks to try and use the same core ASIC so that they can produce just one or two or three chips. So in the case of Broadcom, of course, it's Trident, Tomahawk, and Jericho. Uh, in the case of Cisco, it's Q100, Q200, so the same chip. No technical information that I can offer you to sort of give you any insights. My sense of this is Cisco just has to make this chipset at volume. Once you're running an ASIC, you might as well just print it as large as possible. So they're going to take find a thing that probably works at high scale and then do minor tweaks to it to bring it down market because they can't afford to have the whole thing. One thing that I will note is that Cisco is talking a lot about its one experience, multiple devices, no compromise. Uh-huh. Uh which, which is a bit weird because customers have been saying to Cisco for the last, oh, you know, 20 years, why is it that all of your products have different silicon and different software? Why aren't they the same? Mm-hmm. Why aren't they? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yep. And now all of a sudden they're going, oh, the fact that our unified silicon is all one is now a feature. And it's like, duh. <laughs> <laughs> yes. You asked for it, we gave it to you in silicon. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. It's kind of like, okay, well, yeah, you got there in the end, I suppose, you know, but uh, really this should have been here a decade ago. There was, uh, and and I explained last week that idea that there was a an idea that a, in a conglomerate, all the business units should compete with each other. And Cisco's now realized that its core competitors are external to the company, not internal to the company. That's right. And uh, that's part of the new Cisco that we're seeing is it's turning actually to, to stop fighting with itself and to start turning to customers and going, oh, that's what customers really want. Yes, and grappling with a changing market for sure. Yeah, well, yeah, as we'll talk about. (laughs) All right, last but not least, our final FU, a listener followed up on our conversation about Gartner being bullish on the open source Sonic Network OS. The listener wrote, completely correct on the Sonic Broadcom thoughts. It's not about Sonic for the ASIC manufacturers, but taking the risk away. Cumulus being acquired hurt open networking and disaggregation by taking away that risk and having a NOS from companies that won't be acquired, i.e. Microsoft, Broadcom, Edgecore, and Dell. You guarantee that you won't be selling your ASIC. So when vendors like Dell talk about their Sonic operating system on their switches, or you know, or you can go and get Sonic potentially on a Cisco Silicon One switch, or on a Broadcom switch, or you know, on a in even a Nvidia Mellanox switch potentially, then the point here is that the Sonic remains the same. So your SDN layer or your programming layer, whatever you're doing over the top, talks Sonic. And then the vendors underneath take away the rest of it. Now, there are variations between the switches in terms of feature and functionality, but hopefully it'll look more like the x86, where most x86 implementations look pretty much the same, right. you know, AMD, right. Intel, etc. And doesn't the ASIC is, 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 is important, but it's not vital. Right. I know I can run Linux on Intel or AMD, and I don't have to worry about it. That's, I think, where Sonic is trying to go. Yeah, that's right. I can have Linux SUSE, Linux Red Hat, Linux, you know. Yeah, we'll have lots of Sonic distributions, but at the core, we'll still be manageable and operational and the platform shouldn't matter underneath the hardware underneath. 80-20, I sort of have a sense of the 80-20 rule. If 80% of all Sonic distributions are the same and the last 20% is what right. you've got to live with, right. that's, that's something that feels like it's a natural evolution or a natural outcome as the vendors compete or, you know, AWS might throw out a Sonic distribution that has features that work with its version of, you know, the dent version of thing, its model and so forth because it believes that the Linux should have the, but it's still Sonic to the top, what you see as Sonic. All right. As always, thank you for the follow-up. We love your comments, clarifications, and queries. You can hit us up at packetpushers.net slash FU if you want to join the conversation. 
All right, let's do some news. Cloudflare has announced Magic WAN and Magic Firewall. These are two new as-a-service options for companies who want to simplify WAN networks. The basic idea is pretty straightforward. You point your traffic from a branch network or a remote user or even a data center to a Cloudflare POP. Cloudflare routes the traffic across its own network and exits it uh, at a POP closer to the destination. And meanwhile, while it's in the Cloudflare network, you can do a bunch of security services like network-level firewalling. Uh, they have a WAF service, DDoS protection, that kind of thing. Where have I heard this before? <laughs> right, this is... <laughs> <laughs> this, I've heard this before from, like, everyone. Yep. So there's there's not too much that's actually magic about this, except for the hyperbole um, that makes you want to feel that magic when, which is part of... it's it, it comes back to this idea of a reverse CDN. Once you've got a CDN delivering content from the core outwards... It's not too hard to turn it around and start saying, well, why don't I just accept the traffic in? Mm -hmm. And then once the traffic's in my network, what can I do with it to add value to it? And of course, things like DDoS protection, network firewalling, traffic acceleration, remote access, that's all what a CDN does, right? Mm -hmm. So, and of course, we've also seen various SD-WAN providers build the same model. They've got POPs all around the world, and then they can instantiate network functions, virtualization inside of those POPs, and... Blah. Yeah, as far as I can tell, yeah, Cloudflare's model is exactly what you would get from a Cato or, a, or an Ariaka who came to it via the SD-WAN yep. route, but are now essentially offering networking as a service. It's also very much like the uh, SASE Secure Access Services Edge, where like a Zscaler or a Palo Alto says, just point your traffic here, run it through, get all the security goodness uh, without having to host the infrastructure yourself. Yeah. And this leaves companies like Alkira, of course, which is the sponsor of our live stream event. They're doing something similar, but with a lot more control and a lot more visibility. So keep in mind that Cloudflare is primarily a CDN company. They're not a WAN company. So you would expect this product to be a little simpler, a little sort of more general purpose. It's kind of like, we've got this infrastructure, we can re-spin it. Let's throw it out there and mm -hmm. see if we can find some losers to pick it ah, some customers to pick it up. I think that's a little uh, mean. <laughs> I know, but you know, I don't. I don't think this took a, like a huge amount of effort for them to do. If you know what I'm saying. Ooh, I, I mean, I guess it depends on how they architected it. I, I will say it didn't necessarily take a lot of creative thought. It's obvious they've got capacity to to build this out. They've got the pops. They've got the backbone. Why not leverage it? Yeah, exactly. And they've done a very good job of building a world class v CDN. Has to be said, right? Right. Um, and they've been a very successful business since the day of launch. They've never stumbled. They've always been able to be, you know, and they provide a lot of free services to customers as well. So on the plus side, but um, I think they're not. Thing, it's, yeah, I agree. And, it's, it's not innovative in that they're not breaking new ground. Uh, what they're doing is following, but they've also can take advantage of the fact that there's a lot of companies who have done the evangelization for them and sort of sold the model. And now Cloudflare can come along and pick up and say, hey, you're one of our customers. Do you want to add this on as well? Or maybe even attract new customers. Yeah, and there's lots of companies in this space, Alkira, of course, with their model, which has got a lot more to it than this. And then all of the other, you know, as you say, all the other SD-WAN vendors who are already in this market. The thing missing here, of course, is the edge. Where's the devices sending the traffic into the Cloudflare network? Right, and to that end, they are partnering with, at the outset, a couple of SD-WAN vendors, including VMware VeloCloud and Aruba. They've also got mm -hmm. uh, their own client software. It's essentially a VPN client for remote users. Uh, and they've got a couple other options which are in their blog that you can read or my post on it that's on mm -hmm. packetpusher.net. Yeah, that SD-WAN VPN, like remote access client, that's becoming big. That Remember I predicted that about two years ago? Yep. Can I just congratulate myself on, on predicting the obvious? <laughs> Don't strain your arm. Wasn't exactly clear. Huh? Don't strain your arm, patting <laughs> yourself on the back. 
No, but uh, what we're finding is most of the SD-WAN vendors, uh, unsurprisingly, a year into the pandemic, are now releasing uh, thick clients that install on your device so that you can send the traffic into the SD-WAN uh, and the device itself becomes an SD-WAN edge device. I mean, that was entirely obvious yep. that they would do that pretty quickly, and uh, here we are. So, you know, as you say, Cloudflare's doing it, but so is most of the other SD-WAN vendors. Yeah. I will say I kind of like Cloudflare's no-nonsense and very little hype approach in the announcement. There's nothing about digital transformation or hyperbole around AI ops or yeah. whatever. It's just clear language about how it works and what it does, and the goal is to make uh, your WAN simpler. So... Tip of the hat to Cloudflare you know for that. I'll tell you where the hyperbole comes in is when they go to the customer quotes, especially the analysts. It's clear that the analysts have been trained to make bloviated blah, blah, blahs yes. you know, over the years and marketing people have been telling them to, oh, we need more, you know, something. And now they're sort of like trained like puppies to talk in a certain way and the, the quotes from the analyst firms are quite discordant. <laughs> anyway, Analyst, yes, you're right. Yes, yeah. Mm. Analysts have to say something positive without actually endorsing it in any way. So that makes their language a little, um, a little odd. Yeah. Mm, yeah. Mm -hmm. Anyway, links in the show notes, if you want to learn more, uh, let's turn to Intel, the freshly minted Intel CEO, Pat Gelsinger. He gave a keynote to address, uh, to address his plans to restore Intel to its former glory. Those plans include a target date of 2023 to deliver on seven nanometer chips, increased investment in chip foundries in the US and Europe, and an overall strategy of IDM2 or Integrated Device Manufacture 2.0, meaning that Intel is going to both expand its own chip manufacturing capabilities, but also expand partnerships with third-party foundries where necessary. This was a big deal. I originally didn't sort of put much store, you know, Intel CEO stands up, makes some words, everybody claps and sits down and, yo, we, you know, the world moves on. Right. And it wasn't until sort of a day or two later when I started reading articles about how transformational this was and how this signals a rapid change because, you know, um, you don't hire a CEO like Pat Gelsinger who suddenly adds a billion dollars to your stock price just because he's the new CEO. Mm -hmm. Uh, and he's now moved in and said, I'm actually going to make big changes. And fortunately for uh, Gelsinger, uh, the analysts love it. So they sent the share price up another $2 billion. So, so far, he's a $3 billion CEO. Not bad. Which is <laughs> That's a pretty good first month. <laughs> <laughs> pretty, yeah, not bad for a start, you know, uh, which is all that sort of stuff. Um, I have a theory that CEOs, you know, very rarely get a chance to change the business in any substantial way. They get three or four goes a year to actually do something that makes a transitional difference. And I think uh, this is exactly what's happening here. So the background here is that Intel has always been an integrated business. That is, they design the chips, they then make the chips in their own foundries, and then they sell those chips directly to their customers. Now, their customers are not you and me. They are the computer makers. They are Dell, HPE, and so forth. Yep. And they control the market that the consumer gets very strongly. So instead of just making the product and then letting the middleman buy it and do something with it. Intel goes and works with Microsoft. It invests in Linux. It invests in all sorts of things to get control of the market, to drive the market, to generate demand and drive an innovation cycle. So partly Intel was able to drive the, you know, upgrade your computer every three years mm -hmm. by keeping control of the of the, the marketing campaigns, you know, and the Intel inside with the, the catchy music uh, hit, you know, sting and all that sort of stuff. Um, so Intel's business has always been highly integrated, single company, end-to-end. -end. And Intel's now effectively realized that this model isn't going to work going forward and it's separating its business units, particularly its foundry unit, and separating it into an entirely separate business whose only re reporting line 
is Pat Gelsinger. So right. over here is the Intel <laughs> that you know, and then the foundry business over here that just reports to the CEO, right. which is quite odd, right? It is. It's uh, in some ways because it's almost like that Cisco model where it's internally competing because the foundry services is going to be a separate business that will manufacture chips for third parties, essentially competing against Intel. But they think there's a business model there they can thrive on. Well, they have to. So the challenge here is that Intel has is planning to invest a lot of money, like tens of billions of dollars in new fabrication plants mm -hmm. in the USA. Mm -hmm. And part of his presentation highlighted that 80% of silicon is now made in South Korea or Taiwan. There's a market and a political uh, maneuver here to say, I'm going to start building chips in the USA or Europe. Right. And you're going to get politicians bouncing up and down with excitement, you know, <laughs> local jobs, return to our roots, manufacturing, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. But you're also going to see politicians at a geopolitical level say, Taiwan is very much under threat geopolitically from China. Mm -hmm. And China is stepping up the rhetoric against Taiwan. If they make a military move on Taiwan and cut 40% of the chip capacity in the world out, yeah, that's, there's a problem. That's right? bad for us, yes. That's bad for that's the United States bad. and Europe, yeah. And South Korea is much less of a risk, but notwithstanding, if China was to get North Korea to move in a particular direction, you could disrupt production manufacturing out of South Korea as well. And I think a lot of governments have sort of woken up to the to the risk of that and the impact of business. And I suspect Intel's well positioned to receive an absolute river of government financial support at various <laughs> levels for after that. So... Yes. Kudos to, you know. Yeah, I mean, he positioned Intel essentially as a U.S. and partly also a European champion uh, for the semiconductor in industry. I think he's tapping into business and political anxiety about China in particular and Asia in general as sort of the reigning silicon and semiconductor powerhouses. So mm -hmm. a little bit of flag draping in the current environment is frankly, from a business perspective, a savvy move. It's also a little distasteful yes. in some ways, but as a CEO, he's doing what he needs to do. Yeah. So the long-term potential is, of course, that his competitors, Broadcom, NVIDIA, you know, um, will become customers of Intel's fab unit. They would be reluctant customers, because, but if there's nowhere to go, Samsung and TSMC are at full capacity. Mm -hmm. We know that there are shortages of silicons in the market today, and a lot of the existing Chinese uh, silicon fabs are starting to face trade restrictions and political problems. Their governments are starting to slap on trade fees and... Um, taxes and and so forth. And as China continues to take the stance that it wants to do what's best for itself and keep the production in China and, you know, all that sort of stuff, mm -hmm. it's time for the market to react and start to go against that. So if you are Broadcom or NVIDIA and you're looking for where you want to make chips and Intel's the only player that spent $20 billion making the factory that builds those things, you might have to bite your, bite your tongue and, and get it made at your competitor's place. Yep. Yeah, it's going to be interesting um, to see how that plays out. Yeah, it is interesting because, and there's lots of lots of mechanics in here. So let me give you an insight into a couple of bits of the mechanics. One is that Intel is planning to build two new fab plants in New Mexico and Texas, right? Mm -hmm. And what's the thing that two, that silicon fabs need most, Drew? What's the two things? Well, probably silicon and water. No silicon. Silicon you can, is almost nothing. It's electricity. You ah, need yes, electricity. Vast amounts yep. of electricity, yep, yep, right? yep. And you need vast amounts of water. What are the two states in America that have electricity and water problems? 
in the middle of a desert. Two of them are Texas and New Mexico, certainly. <laughs> so presume, which is pretty interesting. So Intel does have test and assembly sites at locations in the United States, but it also has two in China, two in Malaysia, one in Costa Rica and one in Vietnam. So what they do is they, even though the, the chips might be made somewhere else, the actual silicon part, they then go to other places to be encapsulated into modules and so forth and then turned into final products, right? Mm -hmm. So it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out Um, because – and it usually takes four to ten years to build one of those factories, by the way. So it would be interesting to see if if, uh, Intel can turn this around, if Intel can execute. But it has to be said, new CEO – who's a 30-year veteran who only left the company because he wanted to do something different, comes back to the alma mater, has the imprimatur of the board giving him the support. There's every opportunity for him to make this change and to believe that he might, especially against a background of silicon shortages caused by COVID, trade politics, and increased demand for devices because we're all sitting at home. Right, (laughs) exactly. (laughs) I mean, given all of Intel's problems, the the way they bungled the transition from 10 nanometer to 7 nanometer, which was really an anchor chain around their necks and then some security issues and so on. Pat Kelsinger gives them this kind of new breath, some new swagger, and the geopolitical winds are definitely at their backs, which is helping, I think, his uh, inauguration here. It is bonkers that all the previous CEOs couldn't make a difference. <laughs> <laughs> like, And then suddenly this outsider comes in. All the previous CEOs said, we're going to turn this around, We're going to, but if he comes around and does it, it's one of those things. The outsider can always do things that the insider can't. It's true. Yeah, it helps to come yeah. in outside. Remember that in your career planning, kids. And also, if all the CEOs before you made all the mistakes they could possibly make before finally coming to the realization, all right, we just have to change direction and we're going to do it, and the new CEO comes in and says, I'm doing it. it helps yeah, too. and we can blame him for all the things. That- That's right. We both blame the past. <laughs> All right, uh, plenty of links in the show notes if you want to go check it out. In particular, I would recommend we have a link to uh, a post from Ben Thompson at Stratechery who really breaks down the uh, uh, the whole long keynote presentation bit by bit, so go check it out. All right, uh, taking a quick break to tell you about our sponsor, Path Solutions. If you knew everything your network equipment do, do you think you could run a better network? Path Solutions built TotalView to make it easy to root cause troubleshoot network problems that other monitoring systems aren't even aware of. They automatically monitor all devices and interfaces in your entire infrastructure. Your management and users hold you to be responsible for the entire network. Shouldn't you have the visibility to match? TotalView goes deep, collecting performance, configuration, and 19 different error counters, QoS, and other stats to give it a depth of understanding. This information is then sent through a heuristic engine to produce plain English answers of what's broken. This means your time is spent improving network operations because you know everything that your network equipment knows. The core offering includes all the features that you need to run a healthy network, so things like NetFlow, path mapping, diagramming, IPAM, network configuration, automation, server monitoring, and more. Path Solutions slogan is, don't turtle your network. And if you schedule a technical overview meeting and mention packet pushers, they'll give you a turtle plushie. So visit pathsolutions.com to learn more about how to get total network visibility on your network today. That's pathsolutions.com. We thank them for being a sponsor. Now back to the news. Fortinet is investing $75 million in Linksys as part of a, quote, strategic alliance, unquote, to target the security of home and remote workers. This was interesting. This goes back to um, how companies are evolving in the new environment. And Linksys has been quietly making products that are fairly well used at SME, like in the smaller end of the market, mm-hmm. I want to say. Yeah, small and, and consumer, yep. Which got me thinking. So I dug into it. Apparently, Linksys is wholly owned by Foxconn, uh, Foxconn Interconnect Technology, which is, of course, the mega manufacturer of a lot of technology out of China. So... 
I sort of had the sense that Fortinet was sort of partnering with a Chinese company and was there some sort of way for Fortinet to get access to the Chinese market and or access Chinese products that get around some of the trade issues that are going on? Possibly, yeah. That's some... (laughs) Some difficult dealings there. <laughs> yeah. Like, it's never just one thing, right? It's, it'll be a lot of reasons. There's obviously a financial a partnership. I think Fortinet also gets access, potentially gets access to a better manufacturing relationship with Forti- with Foxconn, potentially. Uh, might get access to some low-end products that it could then add to its portfolio via uh, ODM, so it could rebrand some of the Linksys portfolio and then add the Fortinet uh, the 40 functions to it. Right. You know how Fortinet likes to put they 40 in everything. everything so, yes. <laughs> so they might become like, you know, they could probably 40 sys something and reach into the... Because con- <laughs> when you're a security company and you've got all these cloud services, all you want is for people to onboard at the edge, right? That's exactly what I thought this was about, that mm. with more people working from home and maybe perpetually working from home or working from home sort of part-time, home security is going to be an issue. And with lots of new things like home IoT devices and the connected home coming out that internet router becomes very much an attack surface. And so Fortinet, I think, sees an opportunity to sell to security-minded companies who've got folks working from home and want to maybe pony up for a little bit more expensive home router than just what the person that the home worker would go get themselves at Best Buy or over the internet. Yeah. So one possible way I could see out of this is that Fortinet is headed towards a Meraki-style SD-WAN mm-hmm. for small business with a cloud-operated solution, a relatively low-cost edge appliance, yep. simpler maybe out of a partnership with Linksys. Yeah, I think so too. And then, of course, as you mentioned, Fortinet does have a slew of cloud services uh, you know, along that SASE model that they can then obviously direct the traffic to for all that security goodness. Sure. You know, we could, you know, Fortinet could easily say, well, we'll provide security and virus scanning and email filtering and a whole turnkey sort of security functionality on top of that. Uh, but they dial it back, simplify it down, cut it to the bare 40 basics. And um... <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I can't yeah, help fun with that. Can't... Yeah, go ahead. That's fine. I, I just can't help it because I find it amusing, but okay. Yeah, yeah, it's got all the tools. So where does it go? Maybe that maybe that's an interesting play. Is to everybody else is moving up market to try and attack the top end of the market. Maybe Fortinet's trying to do both, go up and down. And why not? And if they can get the the balance between cost and functions right, then there's I think pretty good potential here to sell to that enterprise market. But as for the the home device, which Meraki has proven. Yep. Mm. All right, links in the show notes if you want to look at it for yourself. Uh, let's move on. A day after Slack announced a new feature called Connect DM, which enables people outside your Slack workspace to connect via Slack, the company had to tweak its invite process due to concerns over harassment and abuse. Uh, the new feature let anyone send you an email and you could customize the message in the email. And a lot of folks were like, so some rando can just start spamming me horrible, terrible, abusive messages. And Slack was like, oh, yeah, we didn't think about that. So we'll turn that feature off. Well, the fact that you can just start sending me messages from slack.com just for, for start, right? Right. Like, it's not, you might as well just be ringing me up. Exactly. You know, <laughs> you know why, why doesn't Slack just give out every, give out my phone number to anybody who wants it and, and invite them to give me a ring? Because yes. that's effectively what you're doing here. Yes. Like, Silicon Valley just continues to um, hate its customers, it just does things because they had a meeting and thought, oh, that'd be a great idea. And I think the great idea here is that tech startups keep looking for ways to replace email. Right. Because apparently email is broken, right? But you and I would just say email is what it is and we find ways to work with it. But 
tech companies that say they see email as a huge opportunity to make money out of what is fundamentally a free service. Mm -hmm. Like if you're a tech uh, entrepreneur, the fact that you can have what is fundamentally free, email, is an opportunity for them to make money out of it, right? So Yeah. I mean, the thing is, e email serves a very useful function. We still get frustrated with it. And so when a mm. tech innovator goes to Silicon Valley and says, I'm going to get rid of email, then that everybody gets excited and they throw money at the issue. When the fact is, email serves a function, it needs to be there. And frankly, trying to get around it the way Slack was just... Uh, the other thing, aside from the abuse issue, the fact is, I already have enough to do on Slack. I don't want people outside my organization no. randomly connecting with me so that they can demand my attention when it's convenient for them. Yes, that is absolutely. We don't even have we don't have third party channels on our Slack for the set for that reason. Right. And you there can, are, I mean there you, are ways to yeah. create work groups that you can invite people outside your org in to coordinate with. I don't see the need for another way to do it. No, definitely not. But I think that Slack was trying to replace email and saying people who wanted to could just start contacting you on Slack for whatever reason. Right. And they didn't stop. There's a big thing in Silicon Valley about growth hacking, which is just using any means possible to get growth yep. without any concern for the customer damage to occur caused along the way. And this is just typical. They would have literally sat in a meeting and gone, what's the best way for this to get the maximum exposure? Well, we'll just not put any controls on it. Just let it go. <laughs> right? and, and tell you what, we'll fix it if, and we'll react to whatever happens. Well, Which they did. You know, but mind you, of course, the other alternative is that you could go and use WhatsApp for work. There's a version of WhatsApp that's apparently for working with. This, uh, you know... Business communications platform is a huge market, and Slack obviously is concerned about Microsoft and Microsoft Teams, among others. And so if they feel like they can steal a little bit of email's thunder from Microsoft, that's a benefit to them. But it's just yeah. all around a bad rollout of this feature. Yeah. Tools matter. And the tools matter. Absolutely, which tool defines your organization to some extent. Yeah. So if you've got an SAP system doing your backend, your company runs like an SAP system. Because the tool itself forces you to work in a certain way. Mm. If you're using Salesforce for certain tools, your company starts to operate like Salesforce wants you to operate. And so when you choose a tool like Slack or Teams, you're actually forcing your company to go down a particular path and it's going to operate. And your whole sales model, business model, accounting model starts to reflect the ethics of these tools. So tools matter as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. And people often don't take time to consider that. Uh, anyway, kudos for Slack for listening to the community and making the fix quickly. But um, I don't know that this is a feature anyone wants off anyway. A tweet that got that just went viral and basically, <laughs> oh yeah, okay, yeah. I I don't know. If, Stop reinventing email. It's fine as it is. Right. Don't just leave it alone. You know, just leave it alone. You know how to deal with yeah, it. Yeah, I know you look at free email and figure if I could charge ten bucks a month for that, I'd be a a mega billionaire. Yes, but you know, yeah, yeah, we're we're stuck with email. Yeah, leave it alone. All right, our last story for the day. The BBC reports that someone spent $2.9 million to buy an NFT of Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey's first ever tweet. $2.9 million. Uh, I've tried really hard, Drew, to not talk about NFTs. An NFT is a non-fungible token. And the idea is, is that you can buy a pointer to a virtual item that signifies your ownership of that virtual item. Yep. So if I took a photo of the the London Bridge down in London, potentially I could sell it to you, Drew, yes. for a million dollars. Right. And you would have the rights to that photo that I gave to you in that non-fungible token. Mm -hmm. uh, but everybody could have the photo, but you would own it. I'd be the owner, yes. Yep, got it. You'd be the owner. Yep, right? yep. Okay, that's it. That's, that's the... 
Yeah, that's it. That's it. <laughs> right. So this is one of these interesting things where you can sell digital art, you can sell tweets, you could sell poems. You... So there's an interesting idea there, right? But you don't own it. You just own the rights. You don't even get publishing rights or anything like that at this point. Um, and uh, basically it's kind of boggling that you can just and, – and basically what even sits on the NFT blockchain part, because it does run on blockchain, of course it does mm-hmm. – um, is that you just have a, a a text file in there which says that you are the person who's currently the owner of it, and of course you can trade that asset, right? Yes. Uh, and the highest profile one was a, a there's a digital artist who's been on Twitter, and every day for the last ten years he's published a piece of digital art. He's got a particular style and a particular look. I follow it; it's kind of amusing. Uh, he recently sold his art catalog piece by piece for seventy million dollars. Wow. So good for the artist, people. He's done pretty well out of the whole thing. Um, and See, the flip side here, you know, that's... Mm. Yeah, the thing is, NFTs do make a certain amount of sense for digital assets, right? Uh, I I can get a image of the painting, the Mona Lisa, and hang it in my house, and it's an exact replica of the original that's in the Louvre, and that's great. And uh, I, I don't own it, but I can look at it, but... So th- there is a market for wanting ownership of a digital asset and an NFT provides a way for the creator to get some money for it and an owner to actually be able to demonstrate they own it. I think what this $2.9 million thing shows is that there's a bubble in NFTs right now and it's going to take some time for the market to figure out how to actually put an appropriate value on things. And right now it's just sort of wild west. See, you say bubble, I say money laundering. <laughs> right. So if I, let, let's say I've got, I've been running a drug cartel and I'm sitting on say three or 400 million US and I need to clean it so that its source is not obvious. Right. Oh. Well, maybe I could trade some NFTs and come out the other, you know, move it through a couple of blockchains, trade some assets between my different organizations. And then all of a sudden it's cleaned. Wow. There's a whole new market there. And then of course, once the hype starts, it starts to become legitimized because the media, like the journal, the publishers of various media outlets, just can't resist the catnip of craziness, right? And um, in the same way that we can't resist talking about it. So that's interesting because one of the reasons you know criminals can't necessarily sell actual like paintings is because no one's going to touch it because it's an actual physical object. But NFTs, wow, there's a whole boy. You just yeah. like launched a whole bunch of new crime show plots. <laughs> <laughs> So you can trade and sell these and maybe the, you know, just money laundering the the assets between yourself is just a case of getting scale and then you come out the other end. Now, the other downside of this is that it uses the Ethereum blockchain and the current NFT blockchains that are out there are currently burning more electricity than states of the, than entire states of the USA or entire major cities. That's the problem. Uh, It's incredibly inefficient. It uses a proof of work, which basically means you have to use a lot of electricity to prove that you uh, created the entry on the blockchain, and it's grossly environmentally unsound at this particular point in time. So there are lots of reasons that this is won't ever get up. But hey, somebody's blowing up tens of millions. Yeah. But that doesn't mean that it'll survive. Uh, my last point for this is that the buyer who bought that Jack Dorsey tweet paid in ether, which is a cryptocurrency. So it's you know sort of eating itself, which seems appropriate. Yes, indeed. And I'm not going to go into the rest of it because I don't want to talk about any of this stuff anymore because it makes me sad. All right. Hopefully that will be our last NFT discussion, but I doubt it, but you never know. Yeah. All right. Well, stick around for our sponsor, TechBytes Conversation with Palo Alto Networks on Prisma Access 2.0. That's starting right now. 
Today on the Tech Bytes podcast, sponsored by Palo Alto Networks, we dive into Prisma Access 2.0 and how it differs from the first-gen version. We're going to talk about cloud-delivered security, zero-trust network access, the return of proxies, and more. Our guest is Kumar Ramachandran. He is SVP of products at Palo Alto. And Greg, you've got the first question for our guest. So thanks for coming today, Kumar. And we want to talk about this idea of Prisma 2.0. Now, Palo Alto has obviously been innovating around the Cloud Genix acquisition since you've arrived. And now we're actually starting to see the transition from SD-WAN to SASE, which has become, well, table stakes, right? So what comes after SASE? What are we doing next? Yeah, uh, Greg, it's great to be here with your audience. Uh, when we look at uh, what's been going on, right, with the pandemic and really this distributed work model that has now taken shape, uh, what has become very clear to us is that we need to be able to both deliver a very powerful network as well as security solution, irrespective of where the user is, home, mobile, or the branch office. Hmm. So with Prisma Access 2.0, what we're doing is uh, really ensuring that our end users have exceptional experiences, right, with a capability called uh, digital experience management. Uh, we're bringing in enhancements to zero trust network access mm -hmm. so that you have very powerful security irrespective of where you are and which application you're accessing. Right. And really also a secure web gateway capability with explicit proxy, right? So just a very feature dense release that allows yeah. our customers to truly embrace this, this distributed work model. So this is kind of getting at the idea that SD-WAN solved the WAN problem. You know, if I was going to, I could replace private circuits with public brand bandwidth, but it was still branch. I still had to have users behind the SD-WAN box. And then what we did was we added security to the SD-WAN box, but now people aren't always in a branch location or in an office location where the traffic can be forced through the SASE slash SD-WAN model. So now we need to start to address this idea of distributed work or remote work, this idea that people are working from home or they're no longer in an office or in fact, uh, and and that the destinations is not necessarily in a data center, it could be in a cloud or SaaS, right? That's exactly right. Uh, and, you know, it used to be a cliche to say that uh, uh, any user, any application, we need to connect them with security and network, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, whereas now it's a requirement, right? And uh, so, you know, in our own experience, what we've seen is that, uh, Early on in the pandemic, it was okay. I had access to some of my applications. Maybe it was poor performance, poor experience. It was almost cute to be able to say that, oh, my kid's Netflix impacted my Zoom call. <laughs> and everyone had a you know good old laugh. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Whereas now it's, it's not so funny anymore, right? My home office is uh, an equal workplace as my branch office. And really, IT has to be able to deliver the tools, the security, the performance, so that I'm highly productive anywhere. So this okay. Prisma 2.0, how is it delivered? Is it entirely cloud? Is there a client piece? Is there an appliance I need to get? Yeah, so with uh, Prisma Access 2.0, uh, so it's a highly distributed cloud security service. Right, so it uh, encompasses things like zero trust network access, CASB capabilities, firewalling as a service, mm -hmm. DLP, et cetera. And then to onboard the end customer, uh, we provide three or four options. Uh, number one, in, in the branch, and actually even in the home, you can choose to use an SD-WAN device, right? Cloud, the Prisma SD-WAN, formerly CloudGenix, seamlessly integrates with uh, this cloud-delivered security capability of Prisma Access. 
we also see people use it even in the home, right? For some of your uh, users where performance is truly at a premium, you can put a CloudGenix device in there. It'll, it's going to apply all the security control, all the performance controls, security coming from Prisma Access. Mm. We also support a client, Global Protect, that allows you to integrate your mobile user, your home user to Prisma Access. And then what we've now done with uh, Prisma Access 2.0 is introduced proxy onboarding mechanism also. We just had several customers say that uh, while they love the client-based approach, it's a richer, more secure approach, being able to make a quick transition uh, with their current proxy architecture, it just was attractive to them. So let me just drill into that. So most people today would be thinking of remote accesses of putting a VPN client onto a laptop, and then they open it up, click a button, and the VPN tunnel is formed to a concentrator, and then that's in a data center. What you're talking about here is for that, for the edge user, for the there's two possible modes. There's one which is the fat client idea that it, that there's a software, and it connects and it VPNs somewhere to the cloud. Is that right? That's right. So with the global product client, yeah. uh, it's no longer the traditional VPN-based approach where you have a concentrator sitting in a data center. Uh, it's going to take you, connect you to the Prisma Access Cloud uh, and the closest Prisma Access entry entry point, right? So you're not going to uh, getting backhauled to some faraway location, mm-hmm. uh, massively distributed with lots of entry points. So it jumps to the closest entry point. And from that, we can take you over our high-speed backbone to the cloud, to internet, back to your data center even if required. And before we do that, we apply the full security stack that Palo Alto brings to bear. So is this where then that zero trust piece comes in, zero trust network access? Yeah, that, that's a great point. So the, uh, uh, the access that we provide is policy-based, right? So you can uh, set, set the system up so that you're providing access based on a specific application for a specific user, right? And so you're truly not trusting uh, whether the user is uh, sitting remote or the user is coming uh, quote unquote on site. You're treating all of these users as untrusted and you're applying policy-based entry points into your network for an application, right? Now, one of the things we've seen is that uh, sometimes uh, there is some confusion saying, oh, if I provide policy-based access, is that sufficient? Is that alone zero trust? And our viewpoint is not at all, right? You can't just uh, uh, say that, uh, yeah, I'll have a doorbell so I can verify who's walking in, uh, but I'm not going to put uh, airport security style uh, inspections, right? You have to, when someone is passing through uh, an airport security checkpoint, it's not just about checking your passport and making sure you know who the person is, but you also want to do a deep uh, scan of the you person. You want to know where they're going to, what plane they're going, are they're going on, to, who else is on the plane, where they, yeah. you know, did the how they've been the in the country for how long. There's a whole lot of metadata that you can attach to Zero Trust to build a, a much more complete identity than just username, password, and two factor. That's exactly right. And Greg, I know you you also want to do pat downs. Uh, <laughs> I'm not going to be judging that, but it is important to keep inspection. Uh, it's it's a nature. It's a it's the reality, right? Yeah. And so with uh, zero trust, uh, it has to be augmented with a full blown security stack, and that's what we do with Prisma Access 2.0. Uh, we actually brought some great innovations with uh, using machine learning. Uh, I know machine learning has become this. Uh, 
you know the way everyone was doing cloud washing yes, now everyone yeah, loves, to, yeah. <laughs> yep. loves to toss in a little bit of machine learning against uh, any of their technologies here's what we did at palo alto uh, we actually use a machine learning engine to avoid the need for signature based prevention uh, and our own research has shown that the vast majority of threats we are able to stop in line using our inline ml techniques and you don't need signature so you don't have this whole issue of uh, the first patient first victim that needs to happen with every other solution so this there's a couple of things going on in here one is i've got the thick vpn client sending my traffic into the cloud which is part of prisma then i've got mm-hmm. a thin solution which is where i ask my web browser to forward to a gateway right and then i can access all my web browser so there's like this thin thick edge thing going on if you want to protect your exchange server or your microsoft office environment or you want to protect a web app you can actually just direct them to a url which is then goes through the prisma cloud and away they go and you don't need to do anything to their laptop ipad iphone whatever it's just all done remotely right that's right so in you know as part of 2.0 we've released uh, proxy capabilities mm. right so you can use the proxy based approaches to connect to prisma access now of course proxies only work for web based uh, applications we all know that uh, and uh, you know our viewpoint is that you have to secure all your applications not just your web based applications in fact uh, our research shows that 53% of threats impacting uh, remote workers uh, they are actually for non web applications it was very surprising to me when i uh, saw the statistics so we actually analyzed 500 of our customers and we found that uh, the the majority of uh, threats impacting customers are still based on non web so proxy is a great way to make a migration but you have to secure all your applications so i'm going to throw a little piece of history at you i do believe that the founder of palo alto once said that proxies aren't the way forward that they're not the thing it's interesting how the you know the point was and i think the point he was trying to make was that at that time proxies were horrible and by the way they were horrible um but that everything that a proxy did in terms of security and application inspection could have been done in an application inspection firewall but now we're in a situation where you can't necessarily put the firewall in line to do the application inspection you need proxies right so so actually it's slightly different right so uh our i don't think our viewpoint that proxies are incomplete has changed right because in the proxy based onboarding uh what you're doing is you're really grabbing web based traffic and our point has always been hey what happens to the rest of the traffic uh if 53% of the threats are for file based traffic uh unsanctioned it applications like bittorrent uh you have to make sure that you're securing all your traffic at the same time what we recognized is that proxies provide a good onboarding mechanism you're not changing your network configs you make a quick transition to palo alto's superior security stack and then away you go so yeah so yeah. well i think i think there's what, a few things uh, there i think 10 years ago proxy software or proxy the the code that we were using for proxies was poor and yeah. i think one of the things the vendors have demonstrated in the last 3 to 5 years is that technologies like sdwan are better like the we all came into sdwan and sassy doubting that the quality of the products would be in place but i think we've actually seen that the quality is actually there and the stability and the reliability um of these much more complex software products work better and more stably than routed networks ever did that's right i think uh, definitely the sdwan stack 
uh, and I can only speak for our stack, right? Yeah. Uh, I think one of the, the secret sauces really was that making sure that there is a layer three through layer seven approach. And it sounds very geeky, but the reality is that that has eliminated a lot of manual operations that network admins and IT admins have had to do, right? And when you hmm. think about how the branch integrates with Prisma Access, uh, the fact that you get this one-click integration, uh, including with Prisma Access 2.0, it's just very powerful, right? So, And you can use the same model all the way to your home and a similar model using either proxy or client-based uh, approaches for the mobile user also. Well, I think also the proxy is almost a design requirement for cloud hosted services because you have to send the traffic to a destination. So it fits the model, whereas before proxies were intercepting at the edge of the network and usually in the data center, and it was very difficult to distribute those around. So there's actually a transition in the way networks are consumed. They're in the cloud. There's many more destinations. And you know, Before, everything was in the data center, and the idea that the secure web gateway would be in one place and then you send all the traffic to it, that doesn't scale anymore. It has to be in the cloud to, you know, for most people, I think that needs to be in the cloud so that I can get access to machine learning updates, patches. I don't want to patch proxy servers anymore. Yeah, we're seeing like very, very rapid growth of Prisma access, right? Including its secure web gateway capabilities. Uh, what's it? I, I think at last count, uh, about 30% of the Fortune 100 are already using Prisma access. Right. Uh, and uh, 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 typically their use cases are uh, Swig, I'm migrating from on-prem uh, secure web gateway. I want to. I want a cloud-based uh, secure web gateway. Uh, I, uh, the second use case is around zero trust network access. Uh, and when they do, when when a customer does a migration to zero trust, and yep. it, it got accelerated with the pandemic, right? Because uh, all of a sudden you have your VPN sitting in the data center, the concentrators. Yes. They're not going to scale. You know, if initially you had 20% of your population simultaneously online, suddenly you have 100% of your population. There's only so many boxes you can rack stack. We, hence, we just saw a massive adoption of Prisma Access for both the SWIG and the Zero Trust Network Access use cases. Okay. So you had mentioned earlier something about user experience management as part of this. Now, I think of Prisma Access more as a security solution, but you're saying I can also get metrics around uh, application or user performance? Yeah, and it's something that I'm super excited about. Uh, we, you know, what we did was uh, we actually acquired a company called Cinefa uh, late last year, mm-hmm. and we've integrated the Cinefa capabilities into Prisma Access with the 2.0 release. So here's what happens: uh, you're sitting at home, uh, you're trying to access your uh, email or your other corporate application, or you're just sitting on a Zoom call, and let's say performance uh, gets bad. What do you do? You open trouble tickets with IT. Now IT all of a sudden has every employee being a branch of one, right? <laughs> Creating all these uh, trouble tickets. It's nearly impossible for IT to respond. So now with 2.0, here's what happens. First off, we look at baselines uh, using synthetic traffic. We establish baselines for the various applications and deviations from the baseline. The whole point is to know that a user is having poor experience even before the user reports it. And then we are able to show you segment-wise views. Hey, uh, is it because your laptop is running hot or is it because the Wi-Fi signal strength is not good enough? Which means, okay, the solution is 
you know, get, get that Wi-Fi router in your home out of the closet or go sit in a different room. There's no point opening a trouble ticket with IT. IT can't help you. Yeah, this is this idea that visibility is much more than monitoring. Monitoring sort of says all the devices in my path are working, connections are up, users are connected. What you need is analytics and telemetry. And I think I've talked about this a fair bit. And digital experience management or digital experience user digital user experience or whatever the you know the marketing term is that you want to use is actually about matching the user and their network experience together. Now, we did a podcast just a few months ago with Cinefar. So if you want to deep dive into the technology and understand more about how the Cinefar technology works, you might want to refer to that show, and we'll put that uh, in the show notes. But to me, that's unusual because up until now, most of that digital experience management has been separated from the VPN. It's been a separate product. So unifying it, I think, is a transition. It, it, it means you've actually rounded out the portfolio. That's exactly right. And what what it does for, for our customers, right? Like you said, is you, you can do two or three things. One is things that an end user has to take care of by themselves, right? My laptop is running hot. It's, you know, maybe I need to stop, turn off the browser and not have so many windows open. Yeah. <laughs> if my Wi-Fi signal strength is not there, okay, I got to fix it. If my local ISP connectivity is the problem, okay, I need to fix it. Yes. But then- after that, there's a set of things that IT can help with. If you can show that, we actually show, hey, if your SaaS provider is running hot, or if the data center is running hot, or if the data center connection is running hot, so you get the separation of concerns. Mm-hmm. I think the separation of concerns is critical to be able to manage the new scale that IT has. Yeah. Right At Palo Alto, we moved from 100 branch offices to 10,000 home offices. <laughs> IT cannot scale if every, they're trying to support 10,000 home offices yeah. using the same methodologies of the past. The key value there is that your troubleshooting gets sped up because you have a lot more data on which to fingerprint or to point the finger. You know, Is it the home connection? Is it the home DNS? Is it the cloud service that's doing the scanning? Is it the SaaS service? And if you can work out which of those it is much more rapidly, you're actually saving a lot of money it's this mean time to innocence that we talk about a lot. It's not the network, but the assumption is that it is always the network. And unless you've got a digital experience management solution, which you can say, well, look, we'll be monitoring that user experience and we can see that the problem is very quickly. It's your server. It's the server in your data center, Mr. Server person. Thanks very much. Close the ticket. Bye. You know, that, and that's really important in 2021. I, I couldn't agree more. And the fact that uh, it's natively integrated I think is is going to become table stakes uh, in the industry because it's not only about native integration, uh, which helps avoid you know how many clients and agents are going to deploy, right? Mm. Uh, it's not just about that. If you think about the integration that our customers want, you want the digital experience to be there, the same uh, telemetry that you get from your uh, laptop. You want the similar thing from the branch with your SD WAN, right? And then if you have all of that telemetry, now it gets very exciting because now you can do correlations, regressions, root cause analysis. I think it's also very useful for blaming your telco. If they're offering you a service, say you're sticking with DIA, you might find that they don't actually meeting the SLAs on that note. That's right. Nature of IT is shifting a little, right? It's moving as the customer moves to a more cloud-based model. You no longer are thinking about break fix. You're also thinking about being an SLA manager and so having these tools that give you, expose the various SLAs can hold your various providers accountable. So 
Kumar, we've run out of time, but if folks want to get more information or find out how they can examine Prisma Access 2.0, where should they go? We have this uh, website, uh, paloaltonetworks.com slash prisma slash access. Uh, I'd love for people to go there. All right, paloaltonetworks.com slash prisma slash access. Kumar, thanks for joining us and thanks to Palo Alto Networks for sponsoring us. You can find this and many more fine, free technical podcasts along with our community blog at packupushers.net. You can follow us on Twitter at Pack of Pushers. Find us on LinkedIn. Rate us on Apple Podcasts. And last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough.